Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we have technology and and you look at the AIs and you look at uh, what we can do now, uh, we can actually wash databases and and deliver them back to people uh, with that uh, up-to-date property and who who's around that property, the people around that property. And that, that's, that's where the keys come in. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Joe Rossi, the National Sales Manager for National Property Group. He shares the ups and downs of selling and buying both property and businesses, the changes he's witnessed between Microfish and ChatGBT and just why he's so fond of his area of Sydney. With over 25 years of experience in the real estate industry and a wealth of knowledge in property data systems and software, Rossi has had a front row seat to the changes over the decades. After buying his first property at 21 and starting a business at 22, he's as involved as ever, though his days look a little different now than they used to. First of all, I'm building a team, so I'm wrangling my salespeople and what I mean by that is is helping them uh, fit our data services to uh, our customers and making sure they're looking for new customers. Also, um, you know, some boring parts of it is is uh, reading contracts and 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 uh, agreements. But what I find the most interesting is is looking at how data fits uh, with our customers now. And and the interesting part is that it can be a home investor to all the way to a large prop tech organization or a big franchise organization. So, so, and that's what keeps me interested all the time is, is just helping people use property data. A lover of acronyms for good reason, he explains what prop tech is. I love using acronyms here, Tyrone, because it keeps me in a job, you see. So if I speak that language, you know that, you know, he must be a specialist. He must be really smart. No, (laughs) just joking. Um, Look, PropTech is a company that uh, either helps or holds property information. So uh, as an example of that, we are a PropTech company. We deliver property insights. Uh, We deliver property insights via either an app 
a platform or raw data. Now, another one would be realestate.com and, and domain, which a lot of people know are the, are the general listing portals uh, for real estate. They are in the prop tech space. Uh, and then anyone that's actually trying to develop uh, um, any form of application that requires property information. His surname gives away that he's from Italy, where his parents immigrated from when he was just two years old. Since then, he's kept close to the inner west suburbs of Sydney. I call myself Mr. Five Kilometres because I landed on a boat and I've lived in the inner west, uh, in Abbotsford, uh, then or Dremoyne, and then Summer Hill, and that's it. That's where I've always lived. So that's about as interesting as I get. Is so as an example, when COVID was here and there was that five-kilometer radius, I just vi- visited my grand, my mother's place. <laughs> It was all within five kilometres, so we rode five kilometres around that. But, but basically, yeah, I, I I love cycling. That's another part of of what I do, um, and I'm also passionate about investing in property as well. He's proud of his strong connection to Italy and sees the great value both for his birth country and Australia have to offer. And I've been back and I've got lots of relatives, uh, so I still have a connection, a strong connection to uh, not only Italy, but uh, where I was born and, and grew up. I've got, um, you know, cousins now, most of the older uncles and aunties have passed, but uh, I've got uh, cousins there. Look, at the end of the day, they were economic uh, migrants, as simple as that. Uh, our family had uh, fantastic um, land holdings and they had you know, if you can imagine a, an Italian village up on the hillside, olive trees, uh, grape vines, and I've been back and I go, why did we move from here? You know, how beautiful is this? The food, the pizzas, all that stuff that you can imagine is there. And, and it was quite uh, we, uh, where we come from is right in the middle of Italy, um, just north of Rome. It's the southernmost ski fields. So you can ski one day and go to the sea the next day so it was really quite idyllic and I love going back there but uh, but you know uh, post-war Italy was a basket case um, and uh, Australia presented as a opportunity to earn and you know they probably didn't have um, great ideas of staying there forever uh, but once they got here uh, I think like all migrants, and uh, they get here and they like the lifestyle. They love the uh, the quality of life and the opportunities that, that the kids had. If you're looking for authentic Italian food, Rossi knows just the place, and he knows it well. Well, my favourite Italian restaurant is in Haverfield called La Desfida. So write that down, guys. It's beautiful. <laughs> I grew up in the 70s. Um, around that area and it was uh, an inter- the inner west was still very very industrial um, so growing up it was very working class you know my parents were obviously immigrants and working in factories and you know that's a typical of greeks and italians that came out so so my memory was basically uh you know started forming in my early teens um 
we grew up around the river, so we were boats, you know, Parramatta River and boats and skiing around that area. I was a keen rower as well. I was a member of the Sydney Rowing Club and yada, yada, yada. So, so, so that was growing up was this adventure around the water. And then obviously we're not that far from the beach, so you either – you know, went to the beach or not, right? <laughs> and surfing. So, so which was funny because Italians don't surf, but there you go. <laughs> Today, he swapped his surfboard for Lycra. As you get older, you realise that uh, running and playing uh, those physical sports, um, you stop. And, and when you turn around, you think, oh, well, cycling does it. No, it's funny. Around Summer Hill, there is a, there's a, a really good social club. And one of the parents of my kids invited me along because I started riding to work. Um, on a flat bar, you know, those heavy bikes. And then obviously he invited me over and everybody's got their carbon fibres and, you know, that's it. You have to buy a carbon fibre now. That's <laughs> so, so thousands of dollars down the track. You're in a peloton in, in Lycra, stopping annoying people at the coffee shops, right? Uh, uh, hogging the lanes. He completed the HSC in 1976 a time where many people, Rossi included, didn't go to university. My first job was a cadetship uh, uh, with uh, a large auto, spa, uh, auto spares company. So, so cars was my thing, you know, like all the Italians around, that's what you do was cars. And so, so school wasn't, um, university wasn't for me, but a cadetship and training and all that sort of stuff was still really quite strong. And I'm going to skip a lid out of my childhood a little bit because it segues to a, a schoolmate of mine who I surfed with. Uh, his uh, path was computers. So you can imagine they weren't around. You, they were big rooms. They were, uh, but he got this first quite. Uh, the, the, it was all intents and purposes a big bloody calculator. He wrote this really simple accounting package for real estate agent for one real estate agent that he was commissioned, uh, which basically did the ledgers for the receipts, the, the rental receipts, and produced a statement for an owner. Really simple back then. Well, there was all ledger sheets and manual books and things like that. So, so when you looked at property management departments, uh, most of them were there, uh, were bookkeepers, right? It cost a fortune for their end of month statements, right? I was selling at that time. I was a rep on the road, and this is at 19. So I'm still quite young. Rep on the road at 19. At about uh, 21, he says, oh, hey, you should uh, sell this program that I've written to real estate agents. Let's start a business. So um, that business now, that that platform called REST, uh, just sold to MRI uh, software for $40 million. So we actually started that, started REST, and I sold it for a lousy $150,000, Tyrone. Can you imagine that? $150,000 in 1984 or something like that. It was ridiculous. 
we kept it going. We re, we revamped it and um, eventually sold in 1994 for a reasonable amount of money to Rock End, and then Rock End sold it for squillions later on. But obviously, the investment for two young dudes that were just writing code. I used to lug the computers around. You know, uh, you never guess how many megabytes we could run a full trust accounting program. I mean, I, I grew up in the days with the floppy disk. You know, the floppy disk had only, you know, the small floppy disk 1.44 and then the, the really, really black big ones. I think for, you know, it's like 500 kilobytes. Yeah, 700, 720 kilobytes. That's it. So we had two of those, one for the program, one for the data, and that's ran the whole trust accounting for about 400 properties. So here we go and we transition now. And I, I don't know whether you want to stay in my personal life, but this is still the, the road that we take uh, is that um, uh, one of the salespeople came back from an office. So, so I, had a sale, I had a sales team then and he said, you know what, uh, I've got this microfish and it's got council records of properties and how much they sold for. Microfish is a film method of storing and preserving large amounts of information that was used between the 60s and 90s. So it's film and libraries used to have them and you'd go into a library and you'd, ha you'd pull out, say, the newspapers and you'd pull the microfish out, which is this wobbly film, and put it into a microfish reader, which is like a, a hybrid of a, a, an overhead projector and it would blow up the, the film and you would read the newspapers on the microfiche, right? Now, this was in every news uh, real estate agent's office because they would buy the microfiche from the councils and they would look at comparable properties via the microfiche. <laughs> so we had this great idea of buying a microfiche reader, printer, and we would print the microfiche out and we sent it offshore this is 1987, and got it keyed up in a CSV file. Back then, it wasn't actually called CSV file. It was just, you know, um, a database that we used called Q&A, and it, we just fed it in. We built up a library of 40 councils in Sydney. This is before RP Data. This is before they started in 1986-87, and we had 40 councils, and we sold each council for $3,500, and then the updates, and that was a lot of money, right? And that was making more than our trust accounting program. <laughs> so data was the key, right? Data was, property data was the key way back then. Coming up after the break, we do some comparisons of now and then in the real estate world. Now we have technology and, and you look at the AIs and you look at uh, what we can do now. How we purchased a property when borrowing money wasn't an option. That was our first renovation and our first experience into doing major restoration as well. He debates on where to go next. That's something that's now uh, I, I, I'm trying to decide. If and that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Are you struggling to get detailed property historical information when doing your due diligence for your project, whether you're buying, selling or developing? 
As a listener of the Property Investory podcast, you can get access to National Property Group's data at a special price for a limited time. When you sign up, you'll not only get access to up to 40 years of property data across Australia such as on-the-market details, suburb profiles, market insights and automated property valuations. In addition, you'll receive unlimited expert support, training videos and use of their industry-leading mapping platform. Simply use the code PI10 to get 10% off the current rate when subscribing to National Property Group's data. So, visit nationalpropertygroup.com.au to redeem your special offer today. Rossi found that the problem with the concept of National Property Group was that back then, real estate agents didn't understand the value of the data they held. Some of the leading uh, agents that were, were switched on, uh, they were on the bleeding edge of that technology. They were keeping their own databases, right? But it was difficult to maintain, it was difficult to keep updated. Uh, it, and, and as a matter of fact, uh, one of the major projects that we're working on now is data cleansing because if you take, we were speaking about Barry Plant, you know, they've got say 500,000 addresses and people in their database, but they they don't know who's current. Now we have technology and, and you look at the AIs and you look at uh, what we can do now, uh, we can actually wash databases and, and deliver them back to people uh, with that uh, up up-to-date property and who who's around that property, the people around that property and that, that's, that's where the keys come in. The microfiche held simple data similar to the value of general and showed transactional information. So you know that when a property is settled, the, v, the value of generals hold that data and it's the, the sale date, the sale price, who bought it and any history on that property as far as you know, the, the previous transactions on that property, right? And, and that's what was on the microfiche. And guess what? Today, that's what we get from the value at general. <laughs> and so it's the exact same thing. He gives an overview of what the value at general does, who they are and what they hold. It's the government body that holds and transfers title of property. So we, if we understand that everybody holds a title, we, we use Torrens title here in Australia, which means that our titles are secure and they're securely held with the government. And when you transfer title from one person to the next, it has to be registered with the value R general. So you have a conveyancy that, that does all the work from an exchange contract to a settlement of the property and during that conveyancy they check titles they check probity and all those things and then and then the property is ready to transfer title in other words it's settled and and the new person actually owns it and then the title transferred and you'll find you have a title document that often if you're borrowing money, will sit with the bank. The banks will hold your title as mortgage. So all of that is held by the value as general and each state has different value as general and each state has different databases. And that's why it's not easy to get into this business because you collate all this information and it's all in different formats. And, and if you think, oh, it's a government database, it's going to be clean, it's as dirty as any database becomes, right? 
Turning back to his cadetship, he recalls that he was there from when he finished school at 18 through to 21 or 22. In that cadetship, the the way people back then, you actually um, were trained and I they, some companies still do it. Uh, uh, they'll take someone young without any experience and then they drop them into different roles. So I was in computers, I was in the, they had you know, uh, I was in payroll, I was in sales, uh, and you'll notice that's where I landed. That's where I got my jammy gyms. So uh, we had lots of branches. It was a, uh, it was a, um, it wasn't quite national, but it was all over New South Wales. So we had branches in regional areas, in inner city. So, so uh, I actually worked in Wentworth Avenue in the city for most of the time, and then out at Five Dock with uh, where they where they actually had branches as well. And and then I I, I you know promoted. I don't know whether it was a promotion. Uh, you're a rep on the road, and you would be a commercial traveller and visit all these, you know, auto parts and mechanics and all those sorts of things. So, so that sales and relationship build is, is this, that's where I learnt that, that core skill of maintaining uh, a rhythm of sales and pipelines and, and relationships and so on. Door knocking on real estate agents was basically what I did uh, for a long time until I could build a team that would do it for me, right? He bought his first property for $80,000. It was a four-bedroom, single-fronted, two-story property and was, of course, in his five-kilometer radius. I'm going to call it, a, it's not a terrace, it were, but, you know, it was sort of shaped like a terrace uh, in Summer Hill. But it was boarded up at the front because it was used as a boarding house. So it was all locked up. It had a, I used to, it looked like a block of flats in Manly because it had a New Fork Island pine in the front of it. And look, uh, that was our first renovation and our first experience into doing major restoration as well. So we brought it back to the Victorian because it was built in the late 80s, 1880s. So it had the bull nose, the fretwork, you know. So we, we, we just basically, and then did the classic renovation at the back. What the interesting thing was, though, it, and, and I think it's really pointed now about interest rates, financing, and how much we could finance. We could only get a $25,000 loan. We had to get $10,000 as a personal loan at a higher interest rate, and the interest rates back then were quite high anyway, and we fell into that really quite high interest rate. So, so this concept of borrowing lots of money just wasn't available to us, and we were both working, you know, so... Um, and this was just before I started my own business. Otherwise, I would, probably would have had no chance at uh, financing at that level, right? Instead of using the mum and dad bank, he ran a market store in Haymarket selling cane furniture to fund his house. Cane furniture, like cane baskets and shelves and cupboards and, you know, it was horrible stuff. But back then it was on on trend, right? You know, we ran it Saturday morning and Sunday morning and um, out at other markets. And we actually, it was a cash business too. So we were building up, it was all cash in hand. It was all cash and, and that's how we got the deposit for the house and uh, able to borrow the money and, you know, 
uh, off we went. It was, it was it was quite amazing. So so that that part of that first uh, investment was it was quite interesting. And so we lived in that, uh, and the way we supported it was basically it was four bedrooms, and we were young, and so it was share house. So we had our friends sharing, and and that helped us pay the mortgage off. Um, so so you just do what you need to do. And uh, I think it was the ethic. And when I'm going to go back to my heritage and we know that there is a culture of property ownership uh, with Greeks and Italians. So that was the thing. Well, you know, why are you paying rent? You can't pay rent. That's wasted money, right? <laughs> security, security, security. That was what it was all about, right? So, so that was our first foray. Um, we then decided to buy our second property and that was um, again a fixer-upper but this time we rented it um, and we then renovated that and flipped it and look it was really interesting because back then your your medium price in the inner west what it does is it smooths out those big mansions on the hill and the little dog boxes that get sold. They're both three bedrooms, but they're complete in the same suburb. They're completely different properties, right? So by using the medium. So so getting back to the story, the median uh, for, say, um, houses around the inner west was still quite cheap. Like, I mean, 250 to 350,000. He bought that property for $142,000 and sold it two years later. We sold it for 315. So that was great, and that was that gave us the taste of it. Um, we we dabbled in buying it off the plan in Balmain. Um, not so successful there. The builder was slow. It took a long time, uh, and that's when we gave family. You know, I spoke earlier when we were we were talking about other pe- helping other people get in and partnering. We partnered with those people, and they wanted to sell out. A unit in Jindabyne, a unit in uh, Port Macquarie. We were diversing our portfolio. <laughs> I think that's important. You don't invest. You don't necessarily invest where you want to live because that's fraught with uh, danger. We we did that because the Inner West had the opportunity of flipping and and renovating. So you could buy something that was really quite uh, not dilapidated, but you know, in disrepair. Put put the nice little back on, put the picket fence at the front, paint it up, and off you go, and and you would make good money, right? That's the Shuri Barber formula as an example of that, right? Man- manufactured equity. <laughs> all in all, he ended up buying, renovating, and selling between ten and twelve properties. Because I've always had a day job, it's always been this, all right, yeah, we're ready to do it again, right? You have a rest, do it again. So over the years, uh, we've had breaks because I've had four children. That's something you didn't know. And I've got two grandchildren, right? So trying to have four children, do the renovation. So you have these long breaks in between. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I've now got my eldest is a builder. My youngest is an architect, so what do you think I'm doing here? According to Rossi, the most interesting one is one he bought two years ago, which is, of course, in Summerhill. That's something that's now, uh, I'm trying to decide. I've got two sets of plans made up and I know uh, I'm trying to decide whether to keep it as one property or or split it. Uh, It's a corner block. It's it's an old shop that's been residential for the last 25, 30 years. It's uh it's an old 
typically I, I love restoring old places right so so again so if you can imagine if it's it's victorian in its shape corner shop it's still got the stained glass saying uh, uh confectionery <laughs> but it came up and i've always looked at it and i thought this would be a great development you know and uh because it's on the corner i can put a um a, a terrace on the back right and that's one property and then renovate the shop which is two-story i've got tenants in it at the moment uh, it's it's too flat at the bottom flat at the top right um but there's enough land um but it's becoming uh a bit of a nightmare so i'm thinking that i'll just renovate and put a granny flat and a garage at the back and then have the whole thing uh, renovated and flip it over. And you say it's becoming more of a nightmare. What, what's, the, what's been the issues? The issues, I suppose, is uh, uh, I've just squeezed in the land size to, to split the block, but uh, it's, it's just the, um, the size of the house. And to tell you the truth, I live in a fairly large house now and we're thinking of moving into having that as a little bolt hole for us to downsize to because it's close to the the cafes and if you if you know summer hill it's a little, beautiful little suburb it's got coffee shops blah 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 so it's really nice to be closer and we're we're a bit further up so it's you know 15 minute walk down to the the shop so so this gives us this little bolt hole we can then go and buy a property out in rural and do all those sorts of things so so that's the the thinking we're doing is if we're going to live there do we want to we want the garden we want that but we do we cut the garden out so it's not really um any problem it's more a personal decision that we're going through and we've got two plans we're trying to decide how it's going to work right um so i, I like all you you need to do that that research and what what suits you personally as far as uh, um what type of development is going to look like are you going to be there is it going to be you if it was hands-off, I'd just split it and then sell the both of them, right? Joe Rossi's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. He shares why he didn't hold on as long as he planned. Basically said, oh, we've had enough of this place. Let's sell it and get out. How to get an eagle eye view without taking a flight. I always took a helicopter view of a suburb. He delves into the retirement that wasn't. I started thinking that uh, I'd have a rest from sales. And that's next time on Property Investory. Are you struggling to get detailed property historical information when doing your due diligence for your project, whether you're buying, selling or developing? As a listener of the Property Investory podcast, you can get access to National Property Group's data at a special price for a limited time. When you sign up, you'll not only get access to up to 40 years of property data across Australia, such as on-the-market details, suburb profiles, market insights and automated property valuations. In addition, you'll receive unlimited expert support, training videos and use of their industry-leading mapping platform. Simply use the code PI10 to get 10% off the current rate when subscribing to National Property Group's data. So, visit nationalpropertygroup.com.au to redeem your special offer today.